0: John chapter 4, looking at verse 43 through 54. Will you stand with me? We're actually going to read the whole chapter together. Think you can handle that? Don't lock your knees. You'll go down. Okay? Um, I'll read. Why don't you guys follow along? I'm reading from the New King James Version. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband and that you've spoken truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth The woman said to him. I know that messiah is coming who is called christ when he comes he will tell us all things Jesus said to her I who speak to you am he And at this point his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman Yet no one said what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot went her way into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you've entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of the city believed on him. Because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said. For we ourselves have heard him. And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now, after the two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go your way. Your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him saying, your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed and his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. That's 54 verses of God's word. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. All right. There was a purpose behind reading all 54 verses of that. Because the section that we're in, verses 43 through 54, has contextual bearing on the whole chapter uh, regarding cross-cultural evangelism with a Samaritan woman at the well. It's important to remember, and Russell, why don't you go ahead and throw our map up there. That Samaria was an area kind of in the middle to north of Israel, north of Judea, south of Galilee, and in the history of Israel, with different captivities and raids that happened on the land, the southern part of Judah, when they were taken captive, they were allowed to return and worship according to the ways of the prophets. According to truth, they were able to have scriptures and they were able to have the Messiah come to them. Jesus came into Judea to the Jews. That captivity from the Babylonians was a beneficial captivity. It was helpful in the plan of God for salvation for the world. Now, the northern part of Israel, when they were taken captive, they were taken captive and disciplined by God by a nation called the Assyrians, okay? And the way the Assyrians would take their enemies captive was through more of a blending of their cultures, which caused that other nation to become weaker and weaker and weaker. So when Israel and the northern ten tribes were taken captive, they were hauled off to Assyria, but some were allowed to stay. And in staying in their homeland, they began to blend with pagan Assyrians, they began to worship other gods, they sort of had a still a little bit of an education from their own culture and past religious experience, but really they just began to blend with pagan um, nations that would come to that Samaria region, and, and they were not truthful in their worship of Yahweh, the one true God. And so by the time Jesus comes into Samaria in John chapter 4, he's coming into this land that's kind of like the land of the rednecks, okay? It's a group of people that they're just a little bit off, right? They're a little bit off base. They're not really loved, you know? It's kind of the armpit of Israel, you know? And uh, and, and the Jews hated the Samaritans. They wouldn't talk to the Samaritans. Um, And yet here Jesus is... At the well, talking to a Samaritan, this person had one strike against him. Talking to a woman, the culture of the day, she had two strikes against him, uh, against her. Talking to a woman who was by herself, three strikes against her. And yet Jesus saw the value in this person. He didn't see, as Paul says, the woman regarding to her flesh, but he saw her as an eternal soul. That needed salvation. And he began to speak to her. And as we read, her witness, and she's reasoning through what Jesus has said until finally she says, you know what? i got to go tell people about you. you. You could very well be the savior of the world. And as she goes to tell them, that whole city of Samaritans comes out to Jesus and believes in Jesus. And they say, you know what? First we heard what you told the woman. And we believe that, but now we've heard it for ourselves, and we believe you at your word, okay? So Jesus, a Jew, goes into this area of, you know, kind of just mixture, an area of paganism, an area that is not worshiping according to the word of God. And when he goes in there, he loves the souls of the people. He evangelizes them and preaches the message of the gospel to them. That if they come to Jesus and drink of the well that is Jesus, they will never thirst again. And and we see that this whole area believed on Jesus and they begged him to stay there for two days. um, And then Jesus moves on. And that brings us to our text today. As we get into this next section, we see that Jesus moves on from there and goes to Galilee. You see it in verse 43 there and so on the map that's helpful because you see okay he's heading north nazareth and cana are in galilee these are areas that we see in our text today the the word cana is where jesus turned water into wine that's where the nobleman is from and uh and we see the sea of galilee that's a familiar geographical marker for us if you've spent time reading the bible you get it and so we get into this section where There's a nobleman's son that is sick to the point of death. He's an official, probably even someone who works for Herod the Great. And in these verses that we're moving into regarding the healing of this official's son, there's a little bit of resemblance to the healing of the centurion's son, which also happened in the region of of Galilee. If you didn't know your Bible very well, you might think that they're the same story, and yet there are things that, that, uh, as you really do the study, They're separate events that just have similar acts of faith and similar steppings of of healing. And in this case, we don't see a woman at a well just out drawing water in the morning uh, or later on in the day, which is really the time she was there. But we see a man who is in desperation because his little one is dying and is possibly even at the point of death. The dad believes this kid is about to die. And it may be that you come to Jesus today, you've came to Calvary Chapel, Prineville, because you find yourself in a similar state. There may be something going on in your life where you are at the end of all hope. You are at the end of all, anything that you can do in your own strength. Maybe it's a little child and they're sick. Maybe it's your marriage, it's at the brink, it's, it's got to end now. What could ever save it or help it? Maybe you're at a place in your own health where you're needing the touch of Jesus, You're at the end of it. There's no hope in anything that you can do in your own strength. And so maybe just like this official, this nobleman that we're reading about today, maybe you would come running to Jesus and cry out for his help as well. Charles Spurgeon said, I pray that your time of affliction would be the black horse upon which mercy shall ride to your door. Because the Lord uses hard times of trial and tribulation and anguish to draw us near to Him. Oh, you'd think that it's during the good times, right? The good times of fatness and plenty where there's no trials. That's when we draw to the Lord. You know what? It's in those times that most often we find ourselves relying on ourselves, praying less, fasting less, fellowshipping less, because we all good in the hood. But it's the Lord's grace and mercy the scriptures tell us that allow trials to come into our lives. And James tells us it's when you fall into various trials. Hey, I was just walking, I woke up, things were great, had a good cup of coffee, there was a songbird chirping in my back porch, and the next thing you know, I've stumbled and fall face first into a curb, and this a trial of afflictions in my life, and this does not seem good, but James says, count it all joy when you fall into these various trials. When this black horse of affliction comes riding your way, because it may be the very thing that brings God's mercy and grace and salvation into your life. And not to be a spoiler alert, but this man, this noble man, may have never known Jesus if it weren't for the trial of his own son coming to death's doorstep. So thank the Lord for these times of trial. It seems that there's almost nothing harder than when our children are suffering and hurting there's something about these little angels you know they can drive us so crazy sometimes but man when they are hurting and when they are in pain and when they are helpless we feel helpless we have many friends i'm sure you have your own friends and you yourselves have gone through difficulties with your children and with their health and that may be a very thing that god has used in your life to drive you to him And so we're going to see in this guy, and I know this is kind of a long introduction before we get into our verse by verse study, we're going to see an authentic faith spring up out of him. Something that's not just a spiritual curiosity, something that moves beyond that to an actual commitment. And in our text, verse 43, after two days he departed from Samaria, that is Jesus, and he went up north to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. This is kind of actually a confusing little set of verses um, because we see that Jesus goes to his own country, but where exactly is that? Some commentaries that I've read say, oh, he's going up into Galilee, he's going into Nazareth. Uh, That's kind of his own country, that's where he was raised. Um, They're in Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, right? We know him by that name. But he also has just come from Judea at the beginning of our chapter. Judea is also his country. Jesus is a Judean. Jesus was born down in Bethlehem of Judea. You see Jerusalem on the map. You see Bethlehem. That's where he was born. So which is it, right? Is it that he wasn't received down in Judea or is it that he wasn't received in Galilee? I mean, how do I know what are you talking about? The answer is yes, Okay, now contextually that might not be like totally right, but contextually it is. Okay, because he just came from Jerusalem in chapter 3 where he did signs and wonders, but he wasn't received in truth. In fact, when he started baptizing and his disciples baptized, he was kind of run out of there because of some affliction and conflict that happened with the Pharisees. So he left His baptism post that his disciples had set up on the river, and he moved up north. He went into Samaria where he was actually received, but not by his own people. He was received by the redneck at the well, okay? And then two days of awesome discipleship happens, two days with Jesus. I mean, does it get any better than that? Forever with Jesus? There's one in every crowd. I knew you were thinking that. Okay, forever with Jesus, but two days is good too, right? Two days with Jesus, then he moves on and he goes back into the land of his hometown. And it is true that while he was there in the land of his hometown, Nazareth, that he wasn't received there. You can read in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, where it says, He came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. So he could not do many mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. So this is a different situation, but it happened in Nazareth in his hometown. And he's there teaching in the synagogue. Luke gives us the passage that he taught from from Isaiah chapter 64. Where he said, I'm the Messiah today. The work of the Messiah is being fulfilled in your hearing. And people marveled. First they marveled. First they were astounded at the words he said. Then they got to thinking. This is the kid I rode the school bus with when I was a kid. This is the kid that my dad bought our dining room table from, his family. And he thinks he's going to come up in here and read from the book of Isaiah and say that he's the Messiah I don't think so. I know this guy's dad. I know his mom. I know his his brother picked on me on the playground. I don't think so. And it says that then they went from being astounded to being offended at him. And Jesus said that phrase that's in our text today. That a prophet has no honor except in his own country. And so it's true that that's true in Judea. And it's true that that's true in Nazareth. And it's Nazareth. And it's a lesson for us. That you could grow up in the same hometown as Jesus and be so familiar with him that you're actually offended by him. How many of us were raised in in a nation under God? How many of us were raised in Christian homes? How many of us went to a Christian school or a Christian academy and so on? And so forth. And you know all the Bible answers. I could ask you, Bible trivia, you might win the prize. Okay? But when it comes to the matters of your heart, you've not surrendered to the lordship and saving ways of Jesus, you're offended by him. And you might not say, crucify him, or as Luke's version of it says, let's throw him off a cliff over here. But you might say, there's another way. I know. I know better than the Bible. I know better than Jesus. And I'm not going to tell anybody, but there's another way. It's my way. It satisfies all my cravings. No one really has to know about it, except that they know about it. And you know what? We're just going to go ahead and not honor Jesus with our life. If it could happen in Nazareth, it can happen in Prineville. And it's probably happening in this room today. Is Jesus saying of Prineville, of the United States, that a prophet has no honor except in a land where there's a greenback bill that says, in God we trust? Happens to be the very place that we're not honoring him? Well, I'm honoring him. I'm Voting red this year. It's not honoring him. That's not what makes your life the aroma of Christ in honoring him. Well, then I'm voting blue. Also not honoring him. Honor him, not just with your lip service, but with your life's service. With your heart. As we read with the woman at the well. Worship him in spirit and in truth. Not in external motions or emotions. And so there's a lot in this it's probably not that important to go over. But his own land may very well be Galilee that we're going to be speaking of today. And it kind of looks like he's sort of received here by the noblemen in the community. We're going to see maybe some truth behind that. But overall, in John chapter 6, we're going to see he's rejected by that area. Okay? So, so far... It's like Samaria, all right, that has has like full-on revival received him, okay? And so let's move along. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him. We're going to see something underneath that as we move on. Having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they'd also gone to the feast. So these Galileans, they were down there when Jesus was working all kinds of signs, wonders. He was overturning tables in the temple, He preached to Nicodemus down there. Nicodemus starts out talking to Jesus by saying, Hey, we know that you're a prophet because no one could do the signs and the works that you're doing unless they were sent from God. And then all those folks that had seen the signs and the works from Jesus went back home after vacation. And they knew there was something special about him, but their reception of him was grounded in the facts that Jesus was working the signs and the wonders. And that's why they had been receiving of him. The enthusiasm of the Galileans was not an enthusiasm that was soundly based. But it was dependent upon the wonders that were arising before their eyes that were taking their breath away. It wasn't a wonder that was it realizing that Jesus was definitely the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world. But no, he can just do some pretty crazy tricks. Make a penny come out your ear, you know. It's incredible, right? That's what was causing their faith, which was not actually authentic faith. And so in verse 46, we see that Jesus came... Again to that Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman. I'd said he was from Cana. He was actually from Capernaum right there by the seashore. Perhaps this nobleman who was there was uh, was a servant of Herod. It's believed in most books that I read that he was one of Herod's stewards. And that he may have been... Um, There's a couple different names, I don't see it currently right on my notes, but there's a couple different names that come up in church history uh, of some stewards that were followers of Jesus, and their wives were notable followers of Jesus, and perhaps, uh, it's like Chaza or something like that, Uh, perhaps this is the guy, perhaps this is the Chaza, okay? And we're going to see for the rest of our chapter here, in this nobleman, that he is going to go from... A tiny little spark of faith in his heart, to a smoldering fire of faith, to a full flame of faith, to a forest fire of faith. And we're going to see it in this little 10 verse section here uh, as we move along. But we've got this nobleman, we've got this guy that serves in Herod's courts, And we've got him come to the place of anxiety as a father, where he is hopeless, but for this one that I've heard wonders about. Morrison writes, how vain was all the showy court life in Herod's palace when there rang through the courts in a voice he loved so well, the wild and delirious cries of raging fever. So he's... he's, Lives in the palace. He's got a comfortable life. He is at want for nearly nothing until through the courts of Herod, he hears the cries of his child at the brink of death, and he realizes, with all that I've got, I've got nothing. Trial was that occasion, the preface of the work of divine grace that will happen in his heart. And here in verse 47, we see the spark of faith. And maybe you might write that in the margin of your Bible. When he heard that Jesus had come into Galilee, Judea of Galilee, he went down to him. And he implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. There's this spark that's kindled. I've heard of this Jesus, and I'm going to him. That's followed by the fire of faith in verse 48. I like what Spurgeon says. Let us see how the fire smolders and the heap begins to smoke and thus betrays the inner fire. And so just as if you, you know, you you got your flint rock and you kind of, you get some sparks, right? And then you set the dry moss on top of that. And it begins to smoke more. It begins to smoke, and there's just some little flame beginning here. The fire of faith, it's showing that there's something deep inside that's combusting. But something that shows the fire of faith in this nobleman's life is actually a rebuke from Jesus. Crazy how the Lord uses correction to work us towards health. When Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means Believe now, Jesus isn't just talking to the nobleman. It's plural. Unless you see signs and wonders the world word you it speaks of you people. It's plural. It's spoken to the crowd that's around Jesus. As D.A. Carson said, the official in the verses before us sounds as if he's approaching Jesus out of the desperation of need but with little thought of who Jesus actually is. It's not until after the miracle that any faith is displayed that goes beyond desperation. So we're at that point where there's there's just a spark, but there's misinformed, misplaced hope in Jesus. Nevertheless, there is a hope, and Jesus takes that, and speaks correction to the culture, to the people, and even into this individual man's life. I wrote, just in my initial study of this, I wrote, is this a harsh statement? Seems kind of mean, like, my son's going to die. You guys. <laughs> you guys, unless you see a sign and wonder, you're never going to believe. Like, that seems like a little bedside manner of the great physician needs a little work, you know. Maybe some continued education in Jesus' case would be helpful, you know? Is it a harsh statement? Is it a rebuke? It is. In fact, Guzik says it might seem that Jesus was harsh towards this man who wanted his son healed. But he encountered many in Galilee who were interested only in his miracles. He therefore questioned this man accordingly. Accordingly we see this throughout the scripture in John chapter 6 in a few weeks Jesus says to them or they say to Jesus what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you what work will you do and Paul talks about the same thing in 1 Corinthians 122 for Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom we got to have a sign dance monkey dance is what they're saying to Jesus but we also know that the truth about signs is that they are not the end in and of themselves. In fact, the Antichrist is going to come in the end time, 2 Thessalonians two nine, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. So the Jews were in a place where they're like, hey, we just want to see some signs. We don't care who you is. Okay? And so Jesus does some signs. All right? But... He's showing them that their heart has a misplaced hope. Because it doesn't matter who comes and does a sign, even if it was satanic, Jesus says, you, you, you may well receive them. Okay, And so Jesus detects in this royal official a welcome and a faith that desires a cure for his son, but does not truly trust him. His faith was true as far as it went, but it didn't go past the spark. It was hindered by a desire for signs and wonders. It's almost like that moss that was put on the spark was a little bit moist still. Alfred says, These words of Jesus imply the contrast between the Samaritans who believed Jesus because of his word. And if you read the section of the woman at the well and the Samaritans, you in multiple, multiple times you see they believed Jesus because of the things he said to them. Didn't need a sign. He had the words of eternal life. It was in his word that they placed their hope. But here in his own land, they don't believe his words. They got to have something like wow the senses, okay? And the Jews would not believe but through signs and prodigies or phenomena or wonders. And so the man comes to Jesus and cries out for help, and Jesus corrects him, corrects the town, corrects the culture. It's a little harsh. I mean, it seems that way i used the word harsh and then Guzik or whoever it was alfred used the word harsh so I, I was like ooh i was right harsh that's the right <laughs> yeah it's just nice when someone's like i agree with that dummy you're like <laughs> okay it, it was harsh and that would seem like that's the end like well that <laughs> it was in here but you know it didn't end real like exciting Spurgeon says, the father did not give up his suit. He did not turn on his heel and say, he treats me hardly. But he says to himself, to whom should I go? And in just another chapter, Jesus asked the disciples the same question. When everyone abandons Jesus because of his statement about all out following, eating his body and drinking his blood, everyone left him on that. He says, are you guys going to leave me too? And Peter says, who else are we going to go to? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so he did not go away. He was like the woman who we know from the gospel, the Syrophoenician, who asked Jesus to heal her child. And he says, and he's kind of like, provoking faith in her by saying hey um, the gospel has come you know for the Jews and not for the dogs and that was just a term speaking of Gentiles non-Jews and the Syrophoenician woman says yeah but even the puppies get the crumbs that fall from the tables and Jesus is like that's what I'm looking for I'm looking for faith that presses in and needs me and this man Was like that Syrophoenician woman, needing him. Paul Bunyan, one of kind of the fathers of the faith from the uh, mid-centuries, spoke these words. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Maybe you say he sounds familiar. It's also a really nasty thing you have on your toe right now. But John Bunyan, okay, never mind, says, I would, the jokes, these are the jokes today, guys. I actually have one written out. I passed on it today after how last week's went. I was like, this crowd, they need more. Okay. Okay, I'll do it. So, no, just kidding. So, John Bunyan wrote this. Incredible testimony. You got to listen to John Piper's biography on John Bunyan. Okay, just John Piper, John Bunyan. Okay. He started the joke about the Bunyan. Okay, anyways says, I was driven to such straits that I must of necessity go to Jesus. And if he had met me with the drawn sword in his hand, I would sooner have thrown myself upon the edge of his sword than have gone away from him. For I knew him to be my last hope. O oh soul, cling to the Lord, come what may. Just as the psalmist says, or actually it was Job, Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. When we come to a point, like the nobleman who, there was a spark, like, okay, I think I need Jesus. Then you realize, I only need Jesus. Then you realize he is such a good, good God, worthy of trust. Just throw yourself on his sword if that's what he wants to do to you. Because there's none better. He's the best. And even if he were to slay you, I trust what he's doing in my life. And so that little spark of faith that's become a a fire of faith, now we're at the flame of faith when the nobleman, verse 49, replies to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. It seems like the nobleman just shrugs off Jesus' statement and begs him to hurry up. Come down before my child dies. The nobleman does not appeal to Jesus on the basis of, don't you know who I am? I'm a nobleman. I'm an official. My son is a good-looking lad with a bright future and a bright hope. He's worth it. Nothing like that. It's out of desperation and bankruptcy that the guy calls out to Jesus. Spurgeon says he urged no merit but pleaded the misery in the case. He did not plead that the boy was of noble birth. That would have been a very bad pleading with Jesus. Nor did he urge that he was a lovely child. That would have been a sorry argument. But he pleaded that he was at the point of death. His extremity was his reason for urgency. The child was at death's door, therefore his father begs that mercy's door be opened. And Spurgeon goes on to say, When you, my friend, are taught by grace to pray aright, you will urge those facts which reveal your own danger and distress, and not those which would make you appear rich in righteousness. You know, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, it's in the same breath that he says, blessed are those who mourn. Because that part of the Sermon on the Mount is saying, we have to come before Jesus realizing we are spiritually bankrupt. We've got nothing to give. As the hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring Simply to the cross I cling. And I've been in prayer meetings where people espouse their righteousness. I've been in prayer meetings where people literally pray the prayer condemned in the gospels. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. I'm not like these sickos or these trashies or these filthies. I'm a pretty decent, upright human being. And I'm thinking, you got to read the rest of that passage. Because it's not that prayer that the Lord loves. It's the prayer that says, woe is me. I'm a filthy, trashy, sicko. And I got no hope. I need grace. I need mercy. And so this noble man that had everything to offer realized he had nothing to offer. And he begs to Jesus a simple prayer. Come down before my child dies. You're our last hope. And so Jesus says to him, go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went his way. You got to love the story of the centurion, that Roman soldier who had a servant that was dying. Very kind of similar encounter. And when he cries out to Jesus, Jesus says, okay, I'm coming. And he says, actually, you don't even have to come. I'm a centurion. I'm a man of authority. And I know how it is where I just, I'm a man of authority. I've got power. And I just say things to be done. And it goes throughout my troop and gets done. And I recognize that's who you are, Jesus. Just say the word. You don't even have to come to my home, and it'll, it'll be happened. And so Jesus did that. He said, I haven't found such great faith in all of Israel. Now this guy, the nobleman, says, come down to my house. I'm not sure you can work by remote control. Right, so the, the spark has turned into a flame and it's a fire, but there's still a little bit like, surely you've got to come and do that anointing with oil thing, and that's a good thing, and and, and Jesus just says, go. Just go. He's well. He lives. So after that, the man believed the word. And so this is where that flame just bursts open that Jesus has spoke to him and he went his way. The father was not interested in signs and wonders, but his son's life. And now we see a ready acceptance of Jesus' assured words. And it proves the quality of his faith that has grown even in the period of this conversation. And I want you just, if you're a note taker or, or, or a noter, note the frequent mentioning here of when people believe in this chapter. We see authentic faith happen in this man's life. In verse 51, as he was going, now going down, His servants met him and told him saying, your son lives. So you got to love the Bible. It's true in history and archeology span and geography. And it's true in this case that from Cana to go down to Capernaum, you go down 700 feet of elevation to the seashore of the sea of Galilee where Capernaum is. And so this man begins to go down and his servants meet him with good news. You guys know how we talk about the gospel? The gospel is good news. It comes from the word evangelion, evangelize, evangelistic, which means good news. Specifically, I think I said this last week, the good news of the battlefield. Okay? In this case, it's not just the good news of the battlefield. It's the good news of the ICU ward. It's the good news of the hospital. Your son lives. This guy is being evangelized to By his servants. There's something perplexing here because as we read on, we're going to see that it's actually the next day that this man is hearing this news. Verse 52, he inquired of them the hour when he got better and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. So, the man was desperate. My son's going to die. Come down. Jesus heals the son. He speaks this word. And instead of this guy running 25 miles down 700 feet of elevation and getting there by that evening or something, he's still up in the region of Cana, cruising down at an official's pace with a retinue, with an entourage, taking care of business. And the beautiful thing is, in all that I've read is that he had such a trust in Jesus' word that his son lived, he didn't have to go check on it. Have you ever kind of been there where you're praying for a healing or something, and you're afraid to check, you don't really know, you're going to go look, and, and you, you either rush to it, just knowing you'll be disappointed. In this case, the guy didn't rush to it. He just knew it was done. If he's healed and he's well, Then I can take care of business up here, and I'll work my way home. I'll get there tomorrow. It's kind of a baffling thing. Spurgeon actually said, one thing I want to mention, though I don't quite understand it, maybe you can make sense of it. (laughs) Seems to me the happy father moved with the ease of a believer rather than with the hurry of an anxious parent. He was a believer now. He trusted the Lord. He remembered Philippians chapter 4, be anxious for nothing. But in all things, by prayer and supplications, let your requests be made known to the Lord with thanksgiving. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. I think he had Philippians memorized, even though it hadn't been written yet. But the Lord works in mysterious ways, am I right? And now we see in this man a consecrated restfulness. Consecrated restfulness befits... A solid faith. Look at verse 53. This is where it's burst into a forest fire of faith. The father knew that it was the same hour which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. Maybe you as a Christian, you've had an experience like this, and it's, I have. It's a wonderful thing to note the time and place when a work of God has happened, and you're able to connect it with when a prayer meeting is occurring. Seems to happen a ton of times when you're putting yourself out there for the kingdom of God. Especially in world missions. A few years ago, we were on our way to Nepal, flying out of Redmond. Super stoked to, to no longer be driving to Portland to fly out, but uh, to be able to fly out from our backyard. And we wake up, and there's just fog. You can barely see, you know, your hand in front of your face. We go ahead and go into the airport. There's just fog all across the the landing strip. There's no planes coming in or out. And as we waited and we waited and we hoped that it would clear. Finally, as a team, we went to prayer that God would blow away the fog. And literally, like, we opened our eyes, and we're like, oh, yeah, just trust the Lord. And there were, in a prayer circle, the people, I was facing with my back to uh, to the airstrip. I was like, yeah, well, guess we'll just see what happens. And everyone's like, look behind you. And the fog had been pushed back. One of our elders in our church is a retired air traffic controller out of Redmond. He was working that day. And he said, we got a plane coming in. They're landing. The plane landed. We hopped on it. We flew out. The fog came back in. We were the only plane to leave that day. Like, that's how the Lord works. Another time, uh, we got snowed in. Actually, not in Portland. Our plane leaving out of Denver was snowed in. And so our plane out of Portland couldn't get into Denver. There was all kinds of problems between... um, the different airlines that had contracted out. And we prayed. And we're like, well, you know, our insurance covers us to hang out in Portland in a nice hotel for two days, so I guess we'll sit around and wait. And as we went to pray as a team, the Lord spoke and said, and I'm not in the name it and claim it ministry, but he did say, put an hour on this so that we'll know that it's me that's doing it. Because basically all across the nation, snow storms had come, and it was a domino effect that this airport's closed, this, line, this plane can't get to this place, this place. It's all, like, shut down. And the Lord opened up the door, and, he, and two things. He said, number one, pray out loud that in 45 minutes you'll be in touch with, like, the, the overseer of ticket sales for United Air. Within 45 minutes, United Air's vice president of ticket sales called us and said that they were working on it. Within a certain amount of time we prayed another thing, we said the Lord said, put an hour on it, and within that period of time, the Lord had worked out where we would fly through in another direction, and it was all it was looking like the trip was canceled. God totally opened up the door. And so I want to encourage you that when there's something going on in your life and you're crying out to the Lord in desperation, mark down the time. Mark down the time when you cried out to the Lord So that you can go back to it in your journal and see, you know what? The Lord was working on the opposite end of the spectrum this entire time. The Lord knows what's right. The Lord knows what's going on in your life. He's always answering. Sometimes it looks different than you might anticipate. Mark it in your journal. Write it down. And you'll be able to go back and declare God's faithfulness over the situation just like this guy did. What time was it? It was 1 p.m. That's exactly when Jesus said, go your way, your son lives. Let's step out. Let's let the Lord work such faith in us where we can see him do great and wonderful things. I want to close with this little statement at the end that this man believed. He'd already believed. There was a spark. The spark was met by some wet kindling. <laughs> but a flame started. The flame turned into a fire. The fire turned into a forest fire. Because once again, he believed. I mean, I believed before, but I believe now. I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. Ah, believe, okay? Don't care. But notice it wasn't he himself who believed, but his whole household. I want to just close today just looking at that point. That when the leaders lead, there's great revival. When the leaders of our households lead, talking to you dads, the Lord works a sanctifying work in your home. Let's look at Acts chapter 10, where we see the first Gentile get saved through the ministry of the apostles. In Acts chapter 10, verse 24, it's Cornelius' story. Cornelius was waiting for the missionaries. He called together his relatives and his close friends. It's Acts 10, 24. So this is the first Gentile. There's a whole backstory. We don't have time. Just know it's a non-Jew. God told him that some guys were going to come speak hope to him. And as he's waiting, he gets all of his friends and family members around to hear from these guys. And in Acts chapter 10, verse 33, he says... Look at the end. We are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. So I've got all my family together. Speak. Tell us. What do, you're going to tell us how to be forgiven of our sins and to know our creator? Go ahead, Peter. Tell us. What do you have to say? All of my families, all of my friends are here. In verse 1044, while Peter was still speaking those words, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word. It goes on to say in verse 46, he heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. And Peter answered, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who've received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord that they asked him to stay. And then they asked him to stay a few days. So we have Cornelius, the first Gentile. He's a Roman centurion to be saved since the crucifixion resurrection of Jesus. And he gets his whole family together. And as they're hearing the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes on them. They have the gifts of the Spirit. They're saved. They begin prophesying, exercising the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They get baptized with water after they're baptized with the Holy Spirit in this case. And it's a revival that happens on Cornelius, on his friends, and on his family. Then as you go to verse 16, uh, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 16. We have another story about a lady named Lydia, who's in Europe. She's a seller of purple fabric. And she has been gathering together at the river and praying with some other women. It's like a women's Bible study. They're not born again yet, but God knows that they're there, and he's going to send some preachers to come and talk to them. And so Acts chapter 16, 13 through 15 says... On the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now, a certain woman's name was Lydia heard us? She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. Aren't you glad I set that up for you guys? Like, just said that. Okay. And the Lord opened her heart. Okay. This is really where in the midst of a, a spark, then the kindling, and a flame, and a fire, and a forest fire. This is where, like, man, in the midst of it all, it's the Lord that does it all. He puts the spark, he adds the kindling, he puts the log, he adds the forest, okay? He's the one who opens up the hearts. He opened up the hearts to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us saying, if you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. So Lydia, a Gentile woman in Europe, Gets saved, listens to the things spoken by Paul, and when she believes, her whole family ends up believing. We see it again in that same chapter, Acts chapter 16. I'm going to set it up just real quick. Paul and Silas were preaching the gospel. They cast a demon out of a lady. They end up getting arrested. They're in prison. They've been beaten. What do they do while they're in prison getting beaten? They sing songs about Jesus, okay? And while they're doing that, verse 25, Acts sixteen twenty-five, Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposed the prisoners had fled, drew his sword, and was about to kill himself, but Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we're all here. And he called for a light, ran in, fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to them, all who were in his house. I love that. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. There's an old army bishop in the British Army. He was a chaplain, Bishop John Taylor Smith. He had a unique test on a candidate who wanted to be an army chaplain. He asked them, how would you speak the gospel to a dying man injured in battle who had three minutes to live? How would they be saved and come to peace with God? If they couldn't do it in three minutes, they weren't fit for the chaplain service. Paul just says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But then he speaks something crazy when he says, not only you but your household. You're a leader. You're the leader of your home. Start following after Jesus and God will begin a work in your home that sanctifies your home. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, even in a home where there's an unbelieving husband, there's a work of sanctification that's happening in him by the wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they're holy. So even with one parent, one spouse that's loving Jesus and living for Jesus, the Holy Spirit is doing a work where he is setting that family apart. You can trust the Lord in that. You can pray to the Lord in that. And in this case, the nobleman believes in the Lord Jesus. The nobleman's whole family believes in the Lord Jesus. Guess who was part of his family? The son who was dying. I believe. You know, he's like pulling the oxygen tube out of his nose and like pulling the IVs out, like count me in. And I want to encourage you. I want to speak to the dads, the husbands. Let the Holy Spirit work a flame in your heart. And maybe as you come here today, Central Oregon, man, we know how to light fires, am I right? (laughs) Right? But we know when you get that little spark, there's potential. And maybe all you have today is a little spark. Right now where you're at, dad's husbands, will you just pray right now in your heart? Fan that flame, Lord. Blow on that ember. Maybe today you would pray, Lord, I know that there's been a spark. You've been, for a couple weeks now, you've just been working in my heart. Lord, would you add the the moss? Don't let it be wet moss, Lord. (laughs) Let that dry moss be in there. Put some kindling on there, Lord. Fan the flame. Make it a flame. Make it a fire. And maybe today you came through these doors and you're like, I've got a fire for the Lord. I don't really know what to do to move on. Today, ask the Lord that he would cause a raging inferno, a forest fire in your life for the Lord Jesus, that you would believe, and you would believe. I mean, it's said twice about the nobleman. He believed, and he went. And he believed some more, and his whole family saved. I would ask you today, men, will you pray today that you'll believe and that your whole family will be saved? I Even as I was studying today, I prepared, and I just... I sense that the Lord would even have some of you men go home, speak to your family that we are going to be a family that follows Jesus. And you would even ask your family, your wife, your kids if they would be baptized with you. Would you join me in that, honey? Would you join me in that, sonny? Would you join me in that sally you know will you join me in that step up as men lead your family in following jesus and it's an interesting thing isn't it but it's not an isolated case that we see in the scripture like there was this one time that this man got saved and his family got saved it was like this one crazy isolate who knew who knew it's all throughout the scripture It's in the Gospels. It's in the book of Acts. It's twice in one chapter in the European ministry. And maybe you've backslidden husbands, men. And it's time to step up. To ask your wife to join you. To ask your kids to join you in following Jesus. What about Lydia, the seller of purple from Thyatira? Single mom, maybe. Widow, maybe. No mention of her husband, but she has a household. Wives, moms, single moms, representatives of your home. Maybe it's you that goes home and says, who wants to follow Jesus? Who wants a forest fire for Jesus? Ask your family. Let's be baptized together as a family. I like, That it's Cornelius that has his servants, that has uh, his, not servants, but his uh, friends that join in with him. And maybe you would have those conversations with your friends. You want to follow Jesus with me? Want to be baptized and make a public statement that we're living for Jesus as forest fires, of passion for the Lord. Let's have the worship team come on up. Don't worry, there's no water here today. Doc, bring in some cups of water, okay? Just kidding, Doc. He'll do it too. This afternoon, on this Lord's Day, some of you men need to be having some conversations with your families. Some of you moms need to have some conversations with your families. There's a sanctifying work that happens when you lead your home. Some theologians, a little bit of a different camp that I'm in. I'm not, I don't totally understand it, but there are Christian theologians on the reform movement side they say, you know what? If you're born into a Christian home, there's a sanctification that takes place and there's a salvation that's like, you can really, really, truly rest in that. I'm not disagreeing with that. It's kind of what we're seeing here. Some incredible stuff happening in families that are following Jesus. So, husbands, fathers, Wives, mothers, oldest kids in the house, let's talk baptism as a family. Maybe you've already been baptized. I'm not saying get baptized again, but maybe lead people in your family who've never been baptized before. Come talk to me, okay? Message me this week. We'll get the baptismal trough ready if that's what the Lord's leading in us. At the very least, anybody want a spark in their heart? No, I'm good. Okay. Anybody want a flame in their heart? Anybody want a forest fire in their heart? Living for Jesus, a forest fire of faith? Let's pray. And if that's where you're at, I invite you to stand with me during this last song. Thank you for this story that's been written of the nobleman. Written, as John says, that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing we might have life in his name. And so, Lord, in this place, (coughs) excuse me, In this place, we've heard the story of the nobleman. And we want to believe as he did at the end of the story. Fan the flame. Light the fire again. Give us combustion in our inner man. Lord, that we would have power to live for you. That we would have passion to live for you. That you would care about truth. In this place, Lord, there are people hurting. That black horse of affliction is riding towards them, and we pray, Lord, that on it would be mercy, (laughs) would be grace, that you would use their trials to be the very thing that leads them to salvation. Those whose marriages are struggling, Billy Graham said, marriage can be the closest thing to heaven on earth, it can be the closest thing to hell on earth. Maybe there's people in this room, they're going through a time of hell in their marriage. Conflict. Bitterness. Anger. A lack of grace. Lack of thankfulness for the spouse. A lack of love and a lack of respect. And they seem like they're in a quicksand that could never, never be recovered. But God, Lord, let The trials in the marriage, bring them to you. Sickness with the children, bring bring them to you, Lord. Addiction, failures, bondage, even denying Jesus like Peter. Use those very things that seem to be the end of us, Lord. Turn them for good. Let them be the very thing that drives us to you. That would be a work of your grace, God. And we invite it in this place today. If you desire that in your life, if you desire the spark, the flame, the fire, stand with me today as we close in this song.